Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show... Lo, death has reared himself a throne in a strange city, lying alone. Where the good and the bad and the worst and the best have gone to their eternal rest. A stir is in the air. There is a movement there. The hours are breathing. Faint and low. Hell rising from a thousand thrones. Shall do it. a sense of Halloween in the air, or rather on the air here at Arts Express, we have a rather unusual show coming up. And what you just heard was from the just-released Edgar Allan Poe reimagined dramatic series, The Fall of the House of Usher. And one of those terrifying stars, Henry Thomas, who's come a long way from the mystified boy way back then in E.T., is our guest on the show, talking about that and more coming up. But first, weaponizing words, the so-called U.S. rules-based order, deep-dive political analyst Pacifica host and contributor to this show, Garland Nixon, is on the case. Hello, Garland Nixon here, and we're going to talk about Tony Blinken's infamous U.S.-led or rules-based international order. Let's talk. Garland here, and we're going to talk about Tony Blink, and he's been uh, yapping lately about the um, the rules-based international order, the U.S.-led order. Let's talk about it. Blinken says China threatens the U.S.-led liberal world order. Okay, so we look at that. Um, he's claimed that China is seeking to become the dominant world power, wants to replace the U.S.-led liberal order. When asked by the Atlantic's Jeffrey Goldberg if Russia or China is a bigger threat, China's the bigger threat, right? So here he says, I think they weren't want a world order, but the world order that they seek is profoundly liberal in nature. Ours is liberal with a small L, and that's the fundamental difference. When asked what he thinks China wants, Blinken said, I think that what it seeks is to be the dominant power in the world militarily, economically, diplomatically. Oh man, that guy's looking in the mirror, isn't he? While Blinken claims China seeks global hegemony like the US. The Biden administration's China policy is focused on preventing Beijing from becoming the hegemon in Southeast Asia by increasing support for Taiwan and looking to challenge China South. Okay, let us chat about that. Liberal world order, U.S.-led world order, rules-based international order. What the heck does that mean, right? Uh, um, I think people, you know, understand the U.S.-led world order, what that means, you know, world hegemony, the U.S. is in power, the U.S. runs the world. But let's look at it a different way. The United States is 4% of the world's population. A U.S.-led world order means what? Let's just make it clear what that means. It means minority rule. It means that a country that has 4% of the world uh, uh, population gets to lead the world. Now, what does lead mean? Does it mean provide an example, right? My dad's old saying, children don't listen, they watch and learn, right? He would always say that. It doesn't matter what you tell your kids, right? If you tell your kids, you should be kind and gentle and you scream and they see their mother and father yelling and screaming and fighting all day, they ain't going to be kind and gentle. They're going to do what they see. They're going to watch and learn. Hey, don't do this. They don't care what you tell them to do. 
they're going to do what they see you do. And, you know, we can see uh, me, lots of other people, the older you get, as you go, you'll find yourself when you grow up as an adult using the same language, using the same phrases, using the same terms, uh, cooking some of the same meals, keeping your house in the same way. You'll find the reflection of your parents in you. Now, your parents, if you turn out to be a complete jerk, will disown it and say, I don't understand how that kid turned out to be like that. And, and, and the people in the outside will say, yeah, I think I understand. They're just like you. You're an asshole. Your son's an asshole or whatever the case may be. But yeah, of course, people are, you know, no, me, I'm a great upstanding civilian. I don't understand how the kid turned out like that. Yeah, you're nothing like that, right? So my point being that a U.S.-led world order would reflect not the rhetoric of the United States, a US-led world order would reflect the actions of the United States. People would be similar to the United States, right? So what we're looking at from the perspective of Tony Blinken is two things, minority rule, 4% of the world leads the other 96%. And that also implies something else. When he says the US liberal order, that also implies the cultural, political um, leadership of the United States will be reflected in the rest of the world. There is a, an obvious problem with that. And the obvious problem with that, and the world knows it, that's why there is no U.S.-led world order, right? There's no such thing because the world understands something, particularly with a Tony Blinken. And that is that the rhetoric of the United States doesn't in fact match the actions of the United States. It's like I said, you can tell your kids, be nice, be nice, be nice kids. And then the, they see their parents screaming and fighting all the time. They ain't going to be nice. They can see you are what your record says you are. They can see what you are, right? In the same way, the U.S. rhetoric is one of a liberal democracies, right? The U.S. rhetoric, and see, that's important when you understand a Tony Blinken et al. talking about a U.S.-led world order. That implies that the U.S. rhetoric matches the U.S. actions, that the U.S. says we want liberal democracies and that we have a liberal democracy and we promote liberal democracy. We neither have a liberal democracy. Let me give you two examples. 2016 and 2020, Bernie Sanders ran. And in uh, there was uh, a, uh, a discussion from some insiders uh, of the Obama camp about some things that were said by Barack Obama. Apparently one of them was if Bernie, if it becomes uh, obvious that Bernie Sanders is going to run away with this thing, then Barack Obama will have to step in. And what happened just before Super Tuesday, Barack Obama got on the phone, called all of the called all of the various candidates, said, OK, you stay in for that because you'll hurt Bernie. You don't stay in. You come together. You do this. There were all kinds of machinations taken by the party to ensure that Bernie Sanders didn't win. Not that if we look at Bernie Sanders today, he's some threat to the system. He played his part. But the bottom line was in a liberal democracy, the people would choose. In the U.S. empire, that ain't happened. Jeremy Corbyn, what happened? We still have statements by Mike Pompeo, then Secretary of State. And let's not forget, Mike Pompeo has never denied these statements. When it looked like Jeremy Corbyn had a chance to win, Pompeo said, if it appears that uh, uh, Corbyn's going to win, we won't hesitate or we won't wait to, st to step in. In other words, the U.S. empire said, there's no liberal democracy in the U.K., if, in fact, it appears that somebody we don't want to win is going to win, then we'll have to act. Now, what happened as a result of that? There was a massive attack on Jeremy Corbyn. He was a, a Kremlin puppet. He was a Russian spy. He was an anti-Semite. He was everything bad. There was a coordinated attack on him. And we could go on and on. What happened to Tulsi Gabbard in 2016? A coordinated attack all throughout the U.S. and its vassals on her. So the bottom line is this. The U.S. empire is so fragile that it cannot afford to have someone who is not part of the empire, who is not a part and partial of the criminal activity of the militaristic, expansive nature of the empire, 
in charge. It can't afford that to happen. They can't afford it. They are up to so much criminal activity. If we look at what's happening with Biden right now, can Biden really afford for someone to come in? And not just Biden, the intelligence community that was involved in the, that we now know that's been involved in, in the, the, the schemes of the Biden family. Can he really afford for someone to come in, whether they're honest or not, that would seek to do a, an honest investigation of that? It would reveal the Biden criminality, and it would also reveal the intelligence slash law enforcement community of the United States. And when I say that, I mean the DOJ, I mean the um, FBI. It would, it, would, it would reveal the incestuous relationships between corrupt political corruption and the U.S. intelligence community, as because I don't think Biden's corruption is the only corruption that the U.S. intelligence community is involved in, is involved in. So again, what we're looking at here is um, a situation where we have an empire, and and again, empire and democracy; those two things can't go together. But we have an empire that does not practice liberal democracy, using the rhetoric as though they do. We're promoting liberal democracy around the world when they're not. I mean, on and on and on. The United States is, how can you promote democracy when you overthrow governments? Even the rhetoric of Ukraine, we're promoting democracy in Ukraine. The United States overthrew the government of Ukraine. Uh, Venezuela, a place that I've been, that I've traveled to, that I know quite well. And what's going on there? A minority of the people, that would be the Juan Guaido faction, of political faction, the United States is promoting them. Nicaragua, the United States promoted the Contras. We see what happened right now. The Sandinistas are in power. 76% of the people in that country support the Sandinista government. Doesn't matter whether the US likes it or not. That's the internal people, that's democracy. Now, what the United, well now, well now you gotta read into something. When Tony Blinken says we are pushing for liberal democracy, what he means is what we interpret as liberal democracy. And inherent in that statement means if it's not what we interpret as liberal democracy, we not only don't support it, we are at war with it. So when he says we're pushing for liberal democracy, what he means is we've, we have a definition of a liberal democracy. And the liberal democracy means they do what we tell them to do. They match our rhetoric. They go along with our rhetoric. They don't argue or expose that our rhetoric is false. They come out and they say, we're a liberal democracy, which would imply that they're looking out for the people. Oh, by the way, we've got oil. We've got lithium, cacao, bananas, blah, blah, blah. The United States corporations are going to come in. They're going to extract our resources, and we're not going to get any of it. That's the bottom line. The definition of a liberal democracy outside of the United States is quite clear. It is a government that is willing to give all of their natural resources, whether you can consider labor and natural resources, et cetera. We're going to expose that to U.S. corporate exploitation and the people in this country will get nothing in return. Now, of course, what is that? That's a recipe for a revolution in a particular country. But, the, but, but it's who cares because it's minority rule. It is, the, and, and generally it is 4% of the world, the United States, saying we lead a world order that benefits us. I mean, let's face it, if the U.S. leads the world order, they're not going to do it in a way that benefits them, of course. So that's all we're looking at, realistically. If you look at what the United States tries to institute in a particular country, take Ukraine. After the United States overthrew the country of Ukraine, what did they do? They empowered the far-right fascists, ultra-nationalists, Azov battalions, etc., right? These groups and organizations existed, but they weren't empowered. Once the United States took over the government, they inculcated them, instituted them into the power structure and fed power to them. If you look at them, that what the United States do, they took the, the Azov and the Svobodas and the uh, C-14s and all of these other militias and fascist groups, organizations and political parties and elevated and empowered them within the context of Ukraine politics, made sure that they were the power players. And what did you have there in reality? Because people will argue, well, not everybody in Ukraine is a fascist or blah, 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 blah. Well, that's true. But the United States helped to expand that particular ideology 
And even if you argue, which may very well be true, that the well, not just argue, which is absolutely true, and that is that the the fascist and expansive expansionist elements in Ukraine aren't the dominant power, shouldn't be naturally the dominant power. The U.S. came in and did what? Minority rule. Yes, they're a minority. Let's say they're ten percent. Let's say they're twenty percent. That's still a minority. Let's not forget that Vladimir Zelensky, though the whole thing was a scheme and a fraud, but he ran on a platform of of peace. And then once he got in, and and he won overwhelmingly. Why? Because the people wanted peace. Because they wanted a actually the people wanted what would be considered a liberal democracy. A demo, what would be if you look at it considered a liberal democracy? That's what they wanted. They wanted democracy first of all. And democracy said that Svoboda Party and Azov, etc., would not be the ruling coalition or even much part of the ruling coalition because they wanted war and the people wanted peace. And they got their peace candidate they thought. So what happened? He comes in. Now we've got minority rule in, in Ukraine. Actually, if we're really honest about it, it's minority proxy rule because the U.S. rules through these groups by proxy. But even the proxy government that they have, even the proxy power structures that they have it, it is a minority rule. Even though it's a fake power structure, even that's minority rule. But the U.S. loves minority rule. And of course, they are proxies. They are puppets for the U.S. So we would get the usual minority rule with a proxy pu puppet go government. So Tony Blinken's U.S.-led rules-based order through, through and through means throughout the world, the United States would say we have a liberal democracy. Throughout the world, the United States would install minority rule all throughout the, the world. And coming up next on Arts Express, welcome to Hell World, storytelling on steroids from wordsmith Luke O'Neill. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. Some years ago, I had the privilege of reading on the air a selection from the author Luke O'Neill's terrific collection of essays called Welcome to Hell World. And now Luke has come out with a new collection of short fiction pieces called A Creature Wanting Form, published by O.R. Press. This new collection is a kind of perfect companion for the current ashes in the air. And again, I thought the best way for you to get the flavor of the book is to read for you now one of the stories from the book, a piece called Thy Kingdom Come. It was agreed upon that there would be no more drinking for the time being, so we gathered up the bottles from each apartment and locked them in a closet in the basement. One last kick in my ass from democracy. The fighting hadn't reached the city yet, but it was on the way. Like tracking a package delivery on your phone. En route, ten minutes away. We've left it outside your door. One wanted to forestall despair and to stay sharp was why. And besides, there were all these guns around all of a sudden, and none of us with much in the way of training. No point accidentally blowing your own head off at a time like this when some pig was on his way to do it for you in short order. I took one last heroic swig as I locked up the door and felt the warmth run through me, then regretted it, then didn't regret it or anything anymore for a little while. After a period of quiet and messing with our phones to try to get a signal, we got to talking about things we always hoped we had a chance to do. Cities around the world, we'd wanted to visit, things like that. I never got to see New York, I said. I know it's not like it is in the movies, but still, you know, the energy. Oh, it was so beautiful, I wanted to kill myself about it. W was our landlord and had been a big shot at the university, and since I never finished my studies there, I had a hair cross my ass about his whole thing. 
I thought I could cut his throat and no one would say anything about it, but I had no justifiable reason to do that. I, I wouldn't do anything like that, actually. F was looking at me like I was an a-hole, and he loved me, but he could have broken me in half if he wanted to, and he often wanted to, so I untensed my shoulders. I don't know why I thought something like that about W. It was the booze in the closet that had gotten to me. I never stopped knowing it was just there the entire time we waited. A vampire, a sense in a heartbeat, the agony of that. L was trying to breastfeed in the corner, but having an awful time of it from what I could tell. Why don't you say a poem for us, someone asked W, and he coughed and he cleared his throat and said, Duh, well, at a time like this, etc. I know one, I said. Margaret, are you grieving over Golden Grove unleaving? It is the plight man was born for. It is Margaret you mourn for. That wasn't the type of thing I would normally do. That was weird of me to do. Manly Hopkins, W said, seemingly impressed, clapping like a hog. I'm not stupid, I wanted to say. I'm not so effing stupid. And in my head, I was throttling him and hanging him over the balcony, but not really meaning it. I, I, I think you understand me. I don't remember many poems anymore, but that one was always easy to remember because it rhymed so simply and obviously, which I guess was the point of inventing rhyming in the first place so that we wouldn't forget things to pass down like that. W's wife was always kind to me before she passed. I got the sense she was watching all this all transpiring from somewhere and decided I'd better act more normal. Curses aren't real, but what is the point of chancing it? God isn't real either, but same idea. I looked at her to see if she had any type of look on her face about the poem, I said, or not. Idiot. A woman doesn't want to marry a poet. Not if they have any sense about anything. Maybe sleep with one for a while before smartening up. Poems are for the very young and for the very old, not for people in the very middle like me, which is maybe why I don't remember too many of them anymore. Maybe they'll all rush back to me toward the end if there's time. Before the shooting started, dozens of us were dying every day from the sickness. Prisoners were set free to shovel the bodies into pyres, and the smoke got so thick and corrosive sometimes that it felt like the sun had set at three in the afternoon. Everyone knew we were breathing in the dust of our neighbors, but no one ever said it out loud. It seemed like a further offense to them to acknowledge what was happening. We'd long since stopped watching the TV for news. The main channel had signed off the other day and left the music video playing over and over, not even in an overtly political one as far as I could tell, so I'm not sure what the point of that was. Everyone always wants something to mean something. After some time had passed, it was decided one of us should go upstairs and peek out the window to see what all we could see, and I said I would do it almost too enthusiastically, but everyone seemed relieved about it, so I climbed to the fourth floor and let myself into my apartment and found a small flask I had stashed away and drank from it and felt pretty much fine about the whole thing just then. How nothing can hurt you. The explosion went off somewhere far enough away that it didn't matter. We got pretty good about judging that sort of thing, the speed at which sound can travel. I have a recurring nightmare where I'm dangling off the side of the building or a cliff or something like an action hero and I'm barely holding on to someone I love below me, trying to pull them back up to safety. But I'm not strong enough and they fall to their death, I presume, but it all blacks out before they land. can't be going around thinking about that type of crap all the time when you're awake, though. I have another dream where there's a horse underneath my bed. 
doesn't do anything. It just lays there like a sick horse, breathing badly. It's massive rib cage moving in and out. It's almost peaceful like the sound of the ocean, but if I'm honest, I've seen the ocean only the once, so what do I know? I slid the glass door to the balcony open and poked my head out, and it was snowing, and then it was raining, and then it was sunny, and then it was snowing again. Down below, someone was running along the street pushing a baby stroller, not fleeing or in a panic or anything, just jogging. She had a bright red hat on, and I waved down to her, but she must not have seen me because she just kept going. A recycling bin was blown around on its wheels in the wind like a malfunctioning robot, and I practiced pointing my gun at it and imagined how it would fall over if I shot it. I wanted to shoot it so badly, but I decided I'd better save the bullet. I made the sign of the cross and closed my eyes, then snapped out of it and noticed the pile of dirty dishes in the sink I assumed would just stay there forever now. Maybe not. Maybe we would be saved at some point. One had to think that. You had to think that. I hadn't been to church in a long time before I prodigally returned when things started to get peculiar last year, and it turns out they had changed the wording of the Lord's Prayer ever ever so slightly in the intervening years since I was a regular. And whenever I heard it spoken differently, it was alien to me. It was like if you went to karaoke and found out they had changed the lyrics to Don't Stop Believing behind your back and told everyone else but you. When I went back downstairs, everyone was quiet, so I said, why don't we say a prayer? And we all held hands and felt strange about it, but said the words anyway. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. general consensus before all of this started seemed to be that we were waiting for some ideal version of ourselves to finally arrive and right the wrongs of the previous generations. But that always struck me as a form of postponing the inevitable, a type of punting. I think that we are now in this cruel and unforgiven and merciless moment of unchecked violence and sickness and indifference to others. The people we were always going to be and always have been, no matter how many billions of prayers or poems we've said. I think the ideal version of this country is here now. It's a train we've been waiting to board that we've already been traveling on for miles. We just didn't realize it yet. Saying the prayer seemed to give everyone something to reflect on for a while, so I sat there quietly thinking about who I would have to kill around here to get one more drink. You've been listening to a reading of the short story, Thy Kingdom Come, from the new book published by O.R. Press titled, A Creature Wanting Form, by Luke O'Neill. You can find out more at Luke's website, welcometohellworld.com. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. Hey, this is Carmine of Peace with Vanilla Fuzz. And you're on the Arts Express with Prairie Miller. And we came up with this version when it was done. And every time I listened to it, I found myself like it was very hypnotic, you know, because the song keeps rolling around. It's not like here's a verse, here's a chorus. It keeps rolling, you know. By the end of the song, I found myself going back and starting over and listening to it again and again. You know, I listened to the music. I played to the music. I played to the vocals. And I just kept my in my head, this is what I do, you know. People say, what's your hobby? This is my hobby. So whatever it takes, it's awesome. Just come in a piece. Keep rocking.
Express. Oh, that is just my medicine. She says, poisoned. Who could have poisoned it? I promised Wendy to take it, and I will as soon as I have sharpened my day. Tink, who sees it to where remembers the red in the pirate's eye, nobly swallows the draft as Peter's hand is reaching for it. Why, Tink, you have drunk my medicine. Ouch. It was poison. Ouch. I drank it to save my life. Tink, do tink with it. And those were scenes from the sci-fi classic E.T., The Extraterrestrial, starring Henry Thomas as that bewildered young boy in the movie. And Thomas is our guest this week, having been part of a huge variety of productions since then, including many scary films like Pet Cemetery and his current starring role in the dramatic series The Fall of the House of Usher, reimagining Poe's gothic tale of a medical mystery as a suspicious contemporary pharmaceutical empire. Also co-starring with Leonardo DiCaprio in Martin Scorsese's Gangs of New York, with Brad Pitt in Legends of the Fall, as Ishmael in the miniseries Moby Dick, the beat poet Philip Whalen in the Jack Kerouac biopic Big Sur, and his recent film Sam and Kate, starring Dustin Hoffman and Sissy Spacek, as well unlikely late-in-life lovers. First, some scenes from Sam and Kate, then Henry Thomas. If you want to get a girl like that, you've got to start acting like a man. You're working at the chocolate factory, you're drawing pictures, not to mention the fact that you're still living under my book. Long time since I've been out like this. Why didn't you tell me you went on a date with Tina? No, I had to. My mom, she would call herself a collector. She's a beautiful woman. I wish you would have at least called me first. Hi, you have someone in there? Oh my God, did Bill stay over? Oh, good heavens, no. You're really talented. You should be doing something with... Hey, how are you? Hello and welcome to our show. Oh, thanks for having me on. What can you say about the fall of the House of Usher and what you're up to there? I play a very twisted uh, (laughs) sort of fellow who sort of the scion of a big pharma 
family, and he's completely inept. And what are your thoughts looking back on E.T.? For which you won a Golden Globe at such a young age, and what it's meant to you in your life and as an actor? Well, it's changed my life <laughs> indescribably, I suppose. Uh, it's crazy that 40 years later, people are still talking about the film. Oh, that, yeah. That's a rarity in itself. Yeah. And... I'm always surprised by that. I'm always kind of shocked that that people remember the film so well, but it's become sort of a Wizard of Oz for our generation. Yeah. Or my generation, anyway. I don't mean to rope you into... Uh, <laughs> my, my <laughs> well, you mean our, as in your generation. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> And have you made any observations through so many decades about how the film world has changed in any way? Well, it's been my life, so I really can't compare it to <laughs> any, anything else that I know. But it's been nice. I've liked and I've enjoyed traveling and meeting all the people that I've met and working with some very interesting characters over the years. But life is uh, a collection of, of experiences, I suppose, and these have been my experiences for whatever they're worth. <laughs> and have you made any observations through so many decades about how the film world has changed in any way? Oh, it's changed. It's, it's so... Uh, it's, it's constantly changing. And it's it's changed pretty much on a cycle of every five years, mm. I've noted. And sometimes the changes are small, and sometimes they're big, but it's always changing. Keeps you on your toes. And anything you've noticed about those changes as an actor? Uh, I think the one thing that I've noted is that film sets are always the same. You know, whatever advances in technology or whatever uh, social changes are happening or, or underway, whenever you get to a film set, it's always a film set. It looks the same. It runs the same. It always takes the same amount of time. So I don't know. I don't know what that means, but uh, <laughs> it makes me feel very safe, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> What was it about Sam and Kate, the film, and the story that got you interested in being part of the production? Well, I love the story. I thought the script was really great. And I also know a lot of people involved. Like, I have a history with Dizzy Spacek. Um, I, was, I was cast in my first movie as her son. So having a chance to work with her again was really great. And Darren Legallo is from my hometown. And Orion Williams, who produced this film, is one of my oldest friends. So it was kind of a special film to be a part of. And I heard about it about eight years ago uh, with Orion and Darren initially, before Sissy's involvement, before Dustin's involvement. So it kind of took on a whole new life once they were on board. And what was it like co-starring with those formidable screen legends, Dustin Hoffman and Sissy Spacek? Oh, it's great. I mean, you can't complain about that. <laughs> <laughs> and what was the experience like for you on the set with them? Well, I didn't have any scenes with Dustin directly, but I had a lot of son scenes with uh, Jake, his son who is fantastic, and I think he did a great job. And I had a, a few scenes with Sissy and Skylar. But it was a lot of fun. I mean, they're great on set, and they're just wonderful actors and wonderful people. And what can you say about one especially moving moment in the film when Dustin Hoffman and Sissy Spacek dance to classic soul music and as kind of an homage to that 60s generation? Yeah, it is, and it it certainly has a lot of nostalgia wrapped up in, in the story. But it's also 
a very human story and a, a story about isolated people and people are kind of left behind, you know. Speaking of which, what are your thoughts about this film as a story of two different generations struggling to communicate or not? I think that's very interesting because there certainly is that, that difference, that generational difference in the way that, um, even the way that the communication is approached by the generations. But I think of it more as an intimate story about kind of people finding themselves after a long time, perhaps. I just think it's wonderful because it's such a small movie that was hard to get made and it took many years for it to get off the ground and get financed and these are all people that I know and it just makes you feel kind of proud to to know that, that people can see it now. Yeah. What can you say about your upcoming film Generation Angst about a drug addicted musician and is that you in the film? Uh, no, and I don't know what's happening with this film because I sort of agreed to be interested in doing it and then it sort of disappeared. So I, if it does come back, it, it would be very interesting. But no, that that wasn't me. That would be my character's son in the film. Ah. Yeah. And it's but so my character certainly didn't, didn't aid to anything. And is there anything else coming up for you? Well, I I have a film that I'm doing, and it's called The Stage. And it's about a magician who discovers supernatural powers while he's on stage. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us on the show. Well, thanks for having me, and I enjoyed talking to you very much. Okay, bye. Bye. And next up on Arts Express. Brian, how long have you been with the Rolling Stones? Are you one of the original members? Yes, one of the original members. What were you doing before you joined? Um, well, just sort of bumming around, waiting for something to happen, really. At the age of just 19, Brian formed the Rolling Stones. They were the first of their kind. Nick and Keith absolutely love Brian. He had all the girls and he had all the fan mail. Brian's rivalry with Mick, the leadership of the Stones, was growing. A visible friction grew up between them. A rock group is sort of like a primitive tribe. Their whole life blood comes from that bond. Once nobody wants to talk to them, they just go off into the woods and die. I felt sorry for him for what we did to him. We took this one thing away, which was being in a band. If you had to do all over again, do you think you'd go the same route again as far as, you know, now that you realize the demands that are put on you as a tremendous success? I'd do it 100 times over if I could. I love it. Hi, this is the UK Desk for Arts Express, and my name is Brett Gregory. What follows is my review of The Stones and Brian Jones, the latest film from Nick Broomfield, acclaimed director of turn-of-the-century classic documentaries such as Kurt and Courtney, Biggie and Tupac, and Eileen, Life and Death of a Serial Killer. Brian Jones founded The Rolling Stones, one of the most commercially successful and influential rock bands of all time, by placing a small advertisement in Jazz News in Soho, London in 1962. Moreover, he himself derived the name of this group, his group, from the great Muddy Waters track Rolling Stone Blues. By 1963, Jones, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, Bill Wyman and Charlie Watts had finally converged and, regardless of anything else which may be written or said about him, true or otherwise, this was, and always will be, an enormous cultural contribution for a 20-year-old young man to have made. He was brilliant. He was a brilliant musician. He shocked everybody with the quality of his playing. We all dedicated ourselves to the band, and Brian more so than anybody else, because it was his band in the beginning. So it meant 
the world to him more than it did to the rest of us. However, there is a sequence in this documentary that begins just after the 15 minute mark, which, for me, personifies Jones as a prisoner of his own making, pacing around and around the exercise yard inside his mind, mumbling over and over to himself until finally he collapses and dies from exhaustion. A former girlfriend, Pat Andrews, and mother of his third child, Julian, describes in voiceover that Jones's own mother, a piano teacher, was a very rigid woman, devoid of fun or laughter, who didn't know how to love her son. Over the opening of Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata, we then hear the voice of his engineer father, Lewis Jones, lamenting his son's increasing fanaticism with jazz and his attendant undisciplined behaviour. He eventually kicks his son out of the family's middle-class home in 1960. Little Richard's tutti-frutti then introduces us to some hazy home video footage of drunken patrons dancing deliriously at Philby's Jazz Club in Leafy Cheltenham in England. Jones, aged 16, worked the door at this club, and it is here where he met his first girlfriend, Valerie Corbett, who, within a year, became the mother of his first child. This nameless baby was given up for adoption by the time Jones reached 18 years of age. He then promptly deserted Valerie and his memory of her by busking around Europe. When his drug-related death arrived in 1969 at the age of 27, drowning in the swimming pool of his farmhouse mansion in Sussex, England, Brian Jones had fathered at least five children with five different women. As detailed by wider verifiable sources, he also had been physically abusive towards all of them. In order to maintain the time-honoured tale of the tortured artist, however, this documentary chooses not to delve too deeply into such baleful behaviour. This said, Nick Broomfield does narrate solemnly, quote, Brian's self-loathing came out in the way he treated other people. In turn, we also learn that in 1965, Jones began a relationship with the Italian-German model and actress Anita Pallenberg. And, to outsiders, their famously raucous two-year relationship was riddled with passion, provocation, performativity and purple haze. However, Volker Schlondorf, who directed Pallenberg in the movie Degree of Murder in 1967, to a soundtrack composed by Jones, comments here, quote, So I guess they got a lot of sexual and erotic excitement out of these fights. I mean... It certainly wasn't a tender relationship. Indeed, after Pallenberg died in 2017, aged 73, Rob Sheffield's obituary in the aptly titled Rolling Stone magazine reminds us that, quote, as Brian grew more abusive and jealous, eventually breaking his hand on her face, she left him for Keith Richards during a trip to Morocco. As an adjunct to this somewhat pitiable pop star portrait, the BBC Archive interview with the aforementioned Pat Andrews from 1965 continues to illuminate. Quote, I feel quite sorry for Brian in a way because the kind of person he is, he can never be happy, could never have true friends. He's got no feelings for anybody. Inevitably, Brian Jones also brimmed and burned with musical talent which, in numerous ways, helped to lay down the foundations and future direction of the Rolling Stones. This fact is intimately revealed to us by their former bass player, Bill Wyman, who is now in his 80s, when he fondly recollects in a fatherly tone how Jones's unique creative contributions to classic tracks like Little Red Rooster and Ruby Tuesday still resonate 56 years later. Yet, sadly, and also inevitably, his bandmates were not exempt from Jones's churlishness or cruelty either. As Wyman comments, quote, If he didn't get his way, he kind of used to get very aggressive, stubbing a cigarette out on the back of your hand in the car. And it is at this moment when we uncomfortably recall, earlier on in the narrative, Jones flicking cigarette ash into Wyman's hair during a live press conference without him knowing. Amidst all this doom and gloom, however, Broomfield's documentary still meticulously vivifies the Rolling Stones' cyclone of success during the mid-1960s, 
through a blend of black and white newsreels, amateur concert footage, still photographs, music recordings and voiceovers. As the band take charge of planet Earth by introducing black R&B to an entire generation of white teenagers, post-pubescent pandemonium is naturally in hot pursuit. Thus, we are thrilled as stages are stormed, airports are attacked, and Mick Jagger's hair is ripped out from its roots by the grasping hands of gasping female fans. Clearly, though, this wasn't Brian Jones's band anymore. Jagger and Richards have been anointed in his stead, and, due to their growing desire for greater album sales and greater stardom, they didn't play his beloved R&B as often as they used to. Out of shape and out of time, a slave to sedatives, scotch and coke, Jones was told by Jagger, Richards and Watts on the 8th of June 1969 that he was no longer a Rolling Stone. One month later, he was dead. Nick Broomfield's The Stones and Brian Jones explores the dark origins of one of the world's most successful rock bands. And, as a consequence, it is compulsory viewing not only for die-hard fans of the Rolling Stones, but also for connoisseurs of music culture in general. It will be available in theatres across the US this November. Meanwhile, for our listeners in the UK, you can watch it right now on BBC iPlayer. This has been the UK Desk for Arts Express, and I've been Brett Gregory. Cheers. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express expression in the arts and if you'd like to express yourself too you can write to us at the radio goddess at gmail.com until next time this is prairie miller leaving the station